Welcome to the Tactical Tool Belt Podcast. On this show, we focus on how the real estate industry, the world's single largest emitter of greenhouse gases, can leverage climate tech to become part of the sustainability solution. I'm your host, Tyson West. I'm a partner on the climate tech team at Fifth Wall, the largest and most active venture investor in technology for the global real estate industry. In this podcast, we'll be joined by people on the front lines, the people inventing, investing in, and deploying the climate tech we'll need to make our homes, offices, and communities more efficient, more sustainable, and ever closer to zero carbon. Today's podcast was first recorded as a video session for Cretech Climate's virtual summit that was held earlier this month. Hudson Pacific Properties' Natalie Tier and I had a great conversation that touched on many of the topics we cover on this podcast, so we are sharing it here for this audience as well. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, my name is Tyson West. I'm a partner at Fitball, where I co-lead the Climate Tech Fund. I'm joined today by Natalie Tier, who is Hudson Pacific's SVP of Innovation, Sustainability, and Social Impact. Um, HPP is a strategic anchor in Fitball's Climate Tech Fund. We think they're also one of the industry's leaders in corporate responsibility in general and sustainability in particular. So we're really excited to be able to work with Natalie and her team as Fitball continues to build out our focus around sustainability in the built world. So today I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Natalie about how she's developed HPP's CSR program, why HPP has chosen to put so much weight into these topics, and what's next for the industry. So Natalie, thank you very much for joining us here. Um, I think we're both dialing in from Los Angeles, am I right? Yes, we are, yeah. All right, yeah, it's spring here, it's great outside, although your, your view is better than mine, I think, um, by the looks of it. Uh, I probably don't have kids hammering on the other side of the door either. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and so that's a great disclaimer for the audience too, that I may have uh, somebody burst in here, but. Let's start off. Can you tell uh, tell everybody a little bit about Hudson Pacific? Um, what markets, asset classes, types of tenants, all that sort of thing? Sure. So we are a publicly listed REIT. We're headquartered in LA. We have about 20 million square feet, um, all in West Coast cities. So LA, San Francisco, and Silicon Valley, Seattle, and Vancouver. Um, our, our entire portfolio um, is classic commercial office space with the exception of a handful of studio properties uh, that we have here in Los Angeles. And most of our tenants across the board are large creative media tech companies. Think Amazon, Google, Netflix. Um, So as it relates to our conversation today, that makes my job really fun because, um, because of the clients we serve, because of the, the markets we're in and where our local jurisdictions are headed because of the, um, types of employees that we're trying to attract for all of those reasons, investing in sustainability for us is just a really good business decision. Got it. No, that makes more sense. And I think we'll probably, we'll probably dive into that a lot, um, as we go here. So, but, but like, what, tell me a little bit more about your role. So I know you lead broadly at HPP, innovation, sustainability, social impact. So like, how does it, how does it all tie together? And maybe actually let's start at the beginning. How long have you had this role? Uh, so I've been here almost two years. Um, before I joined, this role did not exist. Um, one thing I should have said about Hudson is we're a relatively young organization. We are about 10 years old um, and we, uh, um, we, we've always invested in sustainability, but because like any young company, uh, we didn't have a dedicated function, but as we've scaled, 
we've gotten more institutional in our approach to many things, including ESG and innovation. So two years ago, um, my role was created. um, And so I I spend about, I try to spend half my time on ESG issues, environmental and social governance, and then the other half on innovation and prop tech. And um, a lot of that obviously overlaps with you, Tyson, and and your whole team. Got it. Got it. And so, I mean, before HPP, how did you, so like owning that chunk, uh, especially in a REIT, it's sort of a new function. So uh, I mean, what, what background did you have before that? Because I think there's a lot of folks sort of maybe in this audience who are trying to figure out how to build uh, build what you built um, at HPP. So just like, so what, what kind of background did you have coming into this? Have you always been passionate about CSR and impact and these sorts of things? I have always been passionate about the, um, the sustainability and social issues um, whether, and, you know, spend a lot of time outdoors and I've done a lot of volunteering um, for various causes over the years. So, so personally, I've always been committed to those issues, but, but personally also I've, I've been always been interested in, in business and in growing and uh, scaling successful businesses. So most of my career actually was in management consulting. I was at PwC um, and for the, for most of that time, for most of the eight years I was there, I was in their uh, sustainability services team. So, and we did primarily strategy consulting for big, like four to 500 firms, um, primarily retail consumer and healthcare companies. Um, but they, they did run the gamut um, across around all sorts of ESG issues, which I think gave me really good generalist skills in ESG and helped prepare me for the, the ESG side of this role. Um, also at PwC though, I, another hat I wore is I, I did a lot of tech consulting and led a bunch of tech implementation projects. Um, and so that um, bizarrely led to actually very well to this role that I'm in today. Got it. No, it makes makes total sense. So I think I'd like to shift a little bit and talk about your 2020 CSR report, which I think was published a few weeks ago. It was, um, yes. Something like that. Yeah. And, and for the audience, I'd encourage everyone to just go on the web and find it because I think it's really well done. I look at a lot of these and this is, uh, it's just, I won't say more, just check it out. It's, uh, it's pretty unique. But one of the most unique things that struck me about it is that you've taken what I think a lot of folks do when they approach this is they just take ESG as a framework very literally and break out like the acronym uh, as the framework to their approach to CSR. Um, but in your report, you've reframed things into something called your better blueprint. Um, so I don't know, maybe start with that. Like, what is the better blueprint and how is it different from uh, a more common or more generic uh, ESG framework? Yeah. <laughs> one thing that, um, having spent most of my career in the ESG world, um, one thing that I feel so very strongly about is I hate the acronym ESG. I think it means everything to some, everything and nothing all at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it was important to me when I joined Hudson to build a program that spoke to people and that resonated with people, you know, applying just kind of basic brand 101 lessons to, to this program. What are we actually trying to do here? And so Better Blueprint is our kind of like catchy brand that we've put to, to wrap around the whole program. Um, and it, it's intentionally chosen to signify our vision that like there's, you know, and there's a better way of doing real estate. And we think we're doing that. And, but we also think there's um, a lot more we can do and hope to do going forward. Um, so we've got three priorities under Better Blueprint that intentionally do not align with the traditional ESG pillars. They're, for us, they're sustainability, health, and equity. 
Um, and then, and, and I lead our work across all three of those areas. Um, <laughs> funny thing about the way this all planned out and timing is that I joined Hudson in the middle of 2019. We spent about six months um, working on building the strategy. I did a lot of listening and talking to um, our people and a bunch of our external stakeholders and building the strategy. Um, and by the time we were ready to launch it, um, right around Earth Week um, in 2020. If you remember, that was the beginning of the pandemic. So <laughs> so we, we did launch it as planned and, and we didn't, um, I mean, to Hudson's credit, we didn't hold it back. We didn't dial back any of our commitments whatsoever. We like held fast to the, the strategy we'd been building. But what it did mean tactically is that we sustainability, health and equity, when I was building the strategy, frankly, I was like, oh, well, great. I'll be spending most of my time on sustainability and equity because we've got health under control. We've got all this you know, organic food in our lobbies and there's in super walkable neighborhoods. We've got a bunch of on-site fitness centers. And then obviously I spent most of 2020 working on the pandemic. So it just goes to say, you've almost summarized the last 12 months in, in three words, sort of the most topical issues, sustainability yeah, and, that's true. And, and equity. It's, 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 yeah. it's, pretty great. So can you maybe just, uh, it might be, I mean, it's very self-evident, but just give us sort of a quick summary of what rolls up under sustainability, sure. uh, what rolls up under health and what rolls up under um, equity. Sure. So sustainability is all of our work around climate and decarbonization, um, both in our operations and our supply chain around body carbon. And because what we, we operate many buildings and we're vertically integrated, so we actually are doing the operating of our buildings. We also do development. So the sustainability issues are different depending on whether you're talking about the existing building or development business. Um, then uh, it, it also contains a lot of our, our work around water and waste. Um, in addition to climate, we're very focused on waste. We've, um, we've got a goal to be net zero waste by 2025, which is going to be super hard. Um, but uh, that was one thing that I learned in the listening sessions I did early on is that um, our people especially the, the people in our buildings, they care a lot about waste, um, more, th more than I expected. So anyway, we're, we're equally focused on climate and waste um, and sustainability. Um, and then in health, we're, we're focused obviously on, on safety, uh, health and safety, which is you know, COVID safety at the moment, um, but also around wellness and well-being, um, physical wellness, me mental wellness, um, and how do we promote that through, through food, through community building, um, through natural light and then um, equity, it's incorporates all of our work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, which obviously is, um, was also hugely important in 2020, as you noted. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's internally with our employees, but also in our community, we're very focused on driving, advancing equity in our neighborhoods and in our industry. Um, and then also under the equity pillar, we're, we're doing a lot of work around homelessness because of the, the cities we're in. That's such a, a crisis issue too. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, I know these things are pretty hard to compare, um, but have you found sort of making progress and moving sort of steadily towards the goals? Because if in that, in your report, I mean, you have great sort of KPIs on each of these things. Have you found any of them to be notably harder to make progress on than the others or, or, or maybe easier is a, is a better way to frame it, but just, that, that is a broad bucket and sort of very discrete sets of challenges. Um, has, it, has it all been sort of equal or sort of, is there anything interesting to share about that? 
Yeah, on the sustainability side, um, we've we've accomplished a lot. I'm really proud of what we've done on, around energy and, and carbon. Um, I'll say we, we've done less to be transparent around water and waste. Um, our like for like water use actually increased from 2018 to 2019. So um, you know we were pretty concerned about that and focused on it. But, but then guess what? It, plummeted, dropped off a cliff in 2020 because no one's in our buildings using yeah. any water. Um, yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what, what that looks like in a, the post-pandemic world. But it, I think there's a lot more more work for us to do around around water and waste for sure. Got it. Um, so, well, I mean, let's focus on sustainability then. I mean, given this is pre-tech climate. Um, so sustainability KPIs, you've mentioned, um, you've mentioned water and presumably, uh, well, I will, I'll, I'll let you talk. I already know some of the answers to these questions, but <laughs> maybe walk us through your main sustainability KPIs and then how you're doing against them. Because I know you had a pretty big announcement also earlier uh, earlier this year on that. So um, Thank yeah. you. I appreciate the plug. Yes. Um, so personally, I, I believe really strongly in the power of prioritization. And we've tried to do that in our Better Blueprint framework around um, being really clear what our top priorities are and, and not being afraid to say there are other things that we're just not gonna focus on and we're not gonna um, establish KPIs around because we, we would rather be very good at a smaller number of things than mediocre at a lot of things. Um, so the, the number one metric that we look at under sustainability is carbon emissions. Um, greenhouse gas emissions. And that's the, the accomplishment you're referring to is we were really happy to um, say that in, in 2020, we brought those down to zero, net zero. Um, so we're, and we think we're one of only a handful of, of landlords globally that, that have done scope, that. Scope one, scope two, how do you define that, uh, that sort of set? Good question. This, as always, the devil's in the details. Um, for us, we define it as scope one and two, but importantly, once you get into the wonky world of uh, building emissions accounting, uh, there's actually some quite a bit of leeway in figuring out how do you draw the boundaries around what scope one and two are. For us, we took a more conservative approach in that we take um, we track whole building emissions. So we include the emissions that are due to tenants' energy use in our scope one and two categories. Um, and so when we say we're net zero, we're net zero, including tenant emissions and emissions from the, the landlord controlled spaces like lobbies and amenities. Um, and, and then for us, typically because of the nature of our billing scope one emissions is like the natural gas that we use at most of our buildings for heating still. Um, we are looking at, at ways to move away from natural gas, but that's gonna take time. Um, and then scope two is the electricity that we purchased. Got it. So that, I mean, there's two things notable about that. It's, it's a lofty goal and you hit it way ahead of time. So something, a couple interesting things to dig into there. So, I mean, one of them, what, and I'm sure this was the result of many small projects, but can you maybe highlight some of the more significant steps or activities or projects or solutions um, that really move the needle towards that outcome? Yeah. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't lead by saying we have a much easier time of this than so many other landlords um, because of the geographies we're in. You know, our grid is pretty like low carbon compared to a lot of other grids in, in different parts of North America or the world. Um, 
we also have pretty modern buildings um, that are already fairly ener energy efficient. Um, so, so we have a, a head start in many ways. That said, you know, the team, our team here has done an amazing amount of work, especially well preceding my arrival here around energy efficiency. Um, we've got 80% of our office square footage is LEED certified, 71% is Energy Star certified. I mean, I, I am so proud of those numbers. Our team is amazing. And that, that's a truly like a bottom-up lift with every single property team, every single engineering team, leaning into our policies, our procedures, using real-time energy management tools to, to track energy when COVID pandemic hit and people weren't in our buildings looking at energy use, figuring out, okay, someone's in that suite, but not in that suite. How can we turn, turn off systems to minimize, turn the building down in areas that aren't being used right now while, you know, continuing to provide service to the people who need it. Um, I mean, really amazing work happening um, all across our portfolio on the energy efficiency front. Um, we, we've also done um, some cool uh, on-site renewable projects that, that we can talk about in a, a little bit later. Um, and then, but honestly, the, the bulk of our emissions are, are really related to our energy procurement. Um, and this is another area where we have it easier than other landlords because we're vertically integrated and we're still small enough that we have a, a more centralized approach to energy procurement. Um, it's been easier for us to convert to renewable electricity um, than it would be for a, a larger, more decentralized organization. Got it. So, so maybe at a high level, um, just a history of like organizational competence around efficiency and, and, and figuring like taking this seriously over time. Um, a lot of wins was just by uh, just making sure that the electricity you were buying was, was carbon free uh, or low carbon electricity. And then I guess the other one, just because uh, you mentioned it before, but you do have natural gas, uh, as yeah. a, a non yeah. at least for now anyways, non-replaceable yeah. thing. And so that must have been Rex or something similar like that to offset. Um, Correct. That. Yeah, we, we purchased both Rex and offsets. Um, and, 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 you know, and we think that they're a really necessary tool to hitting that zero and a, a really important short-term solution. By no means, they're the long-term solution, though. So we've also got um, a plan in place to, to move away from them gradually over time. And, and for that purchase, did you do a lot of the evaluation of projects, like sort of first person? Did you buy through a marketplace? Like, mm -hmm. I, I know this is a challenge that's facing a lot of people right now, like how to actually execute that transaction. Maybe just a quick, uh, give us an overview of how you ended up doing it. Yeah, it, it is tricky. Um, and again, on this, I'll, I'll point to our, our engineering team. It's, it was amazing. Um, and on the, the Rex front, they, they really led that charge and, and they did, they assessed a lot of different options for, for how to go about buying them. And in the end, we worked with, um, uh, an energy solutions partner who, who we'd already been using for a number of our Northern California properties. Um, and, and we went through them and did, we did a single, REC purchase, a three-year REC purchase through them that we were that we applied to our whole portfolio. Um, it was just a lot more streamlined to go that way. Um, for offsets, we did we decided not to apply our, the RECs to our scope one emissions. We wanted to do offsets that were um, focused on natural gas since we were offsetting natural gas. So we went through a, a, an RFP process and we looked at a, you know, maybe six different um, kind of offset vendors. And, and we landed on um, on three degrees and who we'd not worked with before. 
because this is our first time ever buying offsets, but we, we went through them and, and they gave us a, a menu of offset products to choose from. We ended up choosing a, a landfill gas to energy project. Got it. Got it. Okay. And it, that's definitely an area that we're seeing on the investment side, just a super rich ecosystem of uh, both the end use projects, right? There's a lot of sort of novel technology and end use projects, but then the middleware. So the marketplaces, the all the way down just the simple APIs to plug into. So it's something that we're definitely looking at. But speaking of sort of startups and entrepreneurs, this is Cree Tech Climate. Uh, there's gonna be lots of entrepreneurs and startups uh, watching this who are trying to build climate tech companies. So, you know, you are a significant savvy customer of theirs. Um, are, are there, do you have any ideas for technologies, products, or services that you wish you had access to sort of through, through getting to, uh, to net zero? Like what, what would you have spent money on if you could have only found somebody that had that company? Uh, yeah. So take what I say with a giant grain of salt, because you never know what you don't know. And so there are some areas that I, I may say that we wish there were more products and that are, are just due to my own ignorance and not having spent as much time assessing the landscape here. But, um, you know, I, I guess I would say first to start at the broad level, like I think there's an amazing, rich landscape of prop tech companies focused on building decarb. And, and that's why you're launching your climate fund. And, and that's exactly what you and the team know. Um, and and we're, we have a, a whole, we have a lot of technologies we're using already. We have a whole um, innovation pipeline of a bunch of technologies that we're piloting everything from like window films and if energy monitoring software and leak detection and you name it. There's a ton of options. In fact, it's like kind of overwhelming as the end user. There's there's so many. It's, it's for us in the kind of energy efficiency world, it's more a matter of how to how to sort signal from noise and, and zoom in on the, the technologies that are going to be the most important. Um, the area, the broad area where I feel like is the next frontier of building decarb in general and, and where the prop tech, where I'm hoping the prop tech world and the entrepreneurial world is going to ramp up focus is around embodied carbon. Um, we, you know, th there are companies you hear of like, like carbon cure, like doing really cool things with materials innovation or something. Um, but I, I think there's huge room for improved um, tech-enabled solutions to to reduce embodied carbon, either through like low carbon or even carbon sequestering materials like Carbon Cure, but also um, like monitoring software, tracking software, um, decision-making software. Um, we, we use the EC3 tool and we're very involved in that, the um, Carbon Leadership Forum and Building Transparency Network, um, which is all you know free and publicly available and which is great. Um, but there, there's still, I think, a lot of opportunity for the entrepreneurial ecosystem to, to innovate around that embodied carbon process. And I think there's just gonna be huge, we're at the beginning of surge in demand for, for um, focus on embodied carbon. So I, I think now would be a good time for someone to start a company that, that's focused on tackling that issue. Uh, another thing you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation was water and waste, um, and yeah. that was maybe one of the one of the pillars of sustainability that you hadn't made as much progress on. So that's another interesting how you really submeter and manage uh, water use and that sort of thing. It feels like yeah. it's ready for disruption. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's hard to tell for for us at least. Commercial office is just not actually like a huge water user in the grand scheme mm -hmm. of things, yeah. and so. Yeah. 
you know, we, we want to be responsible and we want to minimize our water use, but a, it's not a huge, like, you know, line, cost line item for us, but also we're not even like that big of a user. And so we're, we're not really the best prospective customer. If you're an entrepreneur looking at water efficiency tech, for example, yep. um, but I would probably put that also in the bucket though, of like tech, you know, technology themes that where there, there is a lot of technology out there and it is, it's more on us to, to spend more time getting to know those, those products and figuring out how to deploy them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I guess my, my last question is what's next? You, you overshot your goal. Uh, so that means you probably have new goals. Uh, just how, how are you looking at sort of going, because from here, like, you know, we've been talking about scope one, scope two, net zero, and sort of, it starts to get, you start to move around definitions a bit. It's just how are you viewing sort of this huge step you've taken the next step? How, what just maybe how have you calibrated your goals and what's the next set of targets for you? Well, so as you alluded to, our initial goal when we launched Better Blueprint was to be net zero carbon in all of our operations by 2025. We brought that forward um, and, and hit it five years early, honestly, largely because of the pandemic, um, because as it was unfolding, we realized pretty quickly, like, man, to keep people safe, we're going to have to run, we're going to have to ventilate more, run HVAC systems longer and harder than ever before. Our energy use is going to go up in the post-pandemic world. We can't have our carbon go up. We've got to decouple them. And so we're like, if we're going to decouple them, let's just do it completely all at once. And so we, we went net zero earlier in order to be able to keep our buildings safe without compromising our sustainability goals. Um, that said, like that was, <laughs> so it, it, it was kind of so much sooner than any of us expected that we were like, okay, well now we've got to figure out what's next. And so what our latest report that came out a couple weeks ago said um, articulates is a, a bunch of goals, most notably um, we've committed to a, a science-based goal uh, that's aligned with the science-based target initiative, SBTI, to reduce our absolute scope one and two emissions 50% by 2030, which means basically without relying on RECs or offsets, we're going to bring our emissions down. Um, and technology is going to be a huge piece of that. Um, more on-site renewables, more direct procurement of renewable electricity from our, our local utilities, or maybe exploring the projects that would drive additionality, like drive new construction of new renewable infrastructure, things like virtual power purchase agreements. We've got kind of a whole bunch of tools in the toolkit to help us meet that. Oh, and you know, moving away from natural gas and electrification. Um, so, so many, many um, tools in the toolkit to help us meet that target. That's probably our most important one, although a close second, honestly, would be the embodied carbon, um, which for us is our most important scope three category. And, and that's because we do development. Um, and we've got, we've got a lot of work to do around System, taking a systematic approach to reducing embodied carbon in our development pipeline. We, we've, we did commit, we've been measuring embodied carbon in all of our projects for the last year and a half. Um, and this year we committed to set actually like project specific embodied carbon goals that we're gonna you know, set. And, and that's because we might be able to do a 40% reduction in a place like Vancouver where the market's really advanced around like mass timber. And, but that's not feasible. In, LA, for example. That, 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 that was going to be my question is when you look at that, is it, do you think you'll get there by just big innovations, like 
wood like or, or, is, or are you going to increment the supply chain uh, of more traditional materials no it's such a i think honestly it's more the latter i think you're going to have much more bigger impact just by say like asking your steel suppliers like how, what's the carbon in your steel let's give you know put carbon on equal footing with price and, and quality everything else and let's move to lower carbon alternatives as long as you know all other factors being roughly equal and there's a ton of stories from, from others and, and things we've experienced, case studies we've had internally to show that, that it can be hugely successful. Like with zero cost impact, you can get steel that's way less carbon intensive. Um, challenge though, honestly, which is so sad, is that that's not a very sexy story. It's really hard to tell that story. And so we will also, I think, be in, like really focusing on the more... I guess, user-friendly or, or sexy innovations like mass timber. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the world the world thrives on marketing and things that make big splashy headlines. So yeah. I think it makes sense. But um, it's been awesome to talk. Uh, we have Likewise. a great sort of partnership and looking forward to um, continuing to make progress here. Okay, thanks. All right, thanks have a great day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Fifth Wall's Tactical Tool Belt Podcast. For more on Fifth Wall and our efforts in climate tech, visit our website at fifthwall.com.